You are listening to the sermon podcast of Connection Church, a gospel-centered community on a mission to make much of Jesus in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. For more information, visit SiouxFallsConnection.com. Thank you for listening. So, Matthew chapter 10. We've been walking through the gospel of Matthew as Matthew has introduced us to Jesus uh, in many different ways by introducing us to his uh, public teaching. That is what we find ourselves in in the chapter Uh, that we're in right now. Chapter 10 is the second of five major public teachings. And this second one is the sending out of his disciples. And so for us, there's many different things we're, we're looking at as a church as we're, as we're kind of walking through the chapter. And we'll read over that one most important, I think, phrase in the chapter coming up this week. That is uh, verse 40, which, was, which is in the reading for this week. Whoever receives you receives me. So as Jesus is sending out his disciples, and he says this also in the Gospel of John, as the Father has sent me, so I send you. And he says then, whoever receives me then receives him who sent me. And so in the season of Advent, where, where that fancy word for arrival, that word Advent, is simply an invitation for you and I to receive to receive and accept the arrival of Jesus. Now, that's not, uh, that's not a small thing, as we all saw last year as we were, we were walking through the beginning of the Gospel of Matthew, and you see this in the Gospel of Luke. Remember, to receive Jesus is no joke. There was no room for, there was no room for him in the end. It is, it is no small thing to receive Jesus, and as we'll see here, to receive Jesus even in spite of difficulty and in the midst of suffering and challenge. But as we see here that we're invited to receive Jesus we see through that the lens of that reception, the sending of the disciples, and thus receiving of missionaries, of other followers of Jesus who were living on mission because Jesus sent them out in the same way that God sent him to us. And so the last couple of weeks we've seen what to expect, how we were to respond, and we even saw last week the fears we are to face. And what you'll see this week is the sword of Jesus, and the reward of Jesus. Now, for many of you, that will either you will love that that rhymes or you will hate it. I apologize or you're welcome. You'll see the sword of Jesus and the reward of Jesus. That'll give you a good way to explain to kids or other people what that means. So we're going to read together this passage. We'll try to read it in context. So I'm going to begin in verse 16 and read to the end of the chapter. It'll take a few minutes, but by the time we get to the verses, we're going to spend our most, most of our time on verse 34 through verse 42. You'll see kind of as we wrap up connecting all the dots of Jesus sending out his disciples and thus giving us a window into what it means in the season of Advent to receive the sending of Jesus. Beginning in verse 16, behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, so be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues, and you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake, to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. When they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say, for what you are to say will be given you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. Brother will deliver brother over to death. And a father is child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. When they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. For truly I say to you, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. 
A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those of his household? So have no fear of them, for nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light, and what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves his father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Whoever receives you receives me. And whoever receives me receives him who sent me. The one who receives a prophet because he is a prophet will receive a prophet's reward. And the one who receives a righteous person because he is a righteous person will receive a righteous person's reward. And whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water because he is a disciple, truly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. Now, hear the first verse of the next chapter. When Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in their cities. Jesus brings a sword, and Jesus brings a reward. Shockingly, intentionally, with provocation, Jesus says, do not think. Now, up to this point, there have been many imperatives along the way where Jesus says, do this, don't do this, don't, you know, carry this, don't carry this, bring this, don't bring this. And, and kind of the overriding second person statement for the last, of, for the last section here is, do not think. That is, do not misunderstand. Do not misunderstand what I'm sending you into and therefore what I am being sent into. I have not come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace. I've come to bring a sword. Now, notably, at this season of Christmas, someone will sing or quote this particular passage, the prophetic voice of Isaiah in chapter 9, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. 
on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. How is it that the fulfillment of this prophetic word in Isaiah can come in Jesus and Jesus can also say, I don't come to bring peace, but I come to bring a sword. A sword that will set family members against other family members. And those who receive, those who are sent, even in light of this sword, will experience a reward the likes of which the world has never seen. Well, Jesus does this regularly, speaks provocatively, so that you and I will stop for a moment, lean on the Holy Spirit to understand what it is that he's saying, rather than, as we typically do, when, when we, if we're not careful, and this may not be the case for many of you, but like, if you're in this room and maybe you were kind of raised in a Christian culture, a Christian household, you've probably kind of been lulled into thinking you already know what Jesus is talking about, and one of the most dangerous things you can do is to, when Jesus speaks, you go, I already know that, I already have a category for that. That already fits into a neat category that makes sense to me. And Jesus regularly, so that we will utterly and completely and regularly depend upon him, he says things that burst our categories. Even good things like peace. He comes as the prince of peace and his government and reign will bring more peace. There'll be no end to this peace. And yet we find here is one of the last paradoxes that Jesus gives to those he sends out. Our eternal peace will cause temporal and earthly adversity. While he may be sending you and I out as the Prince of Peace, to proclaim the reign of peace that is coming and growing and will have no end. Do not begin to think that just because you align with and are united with the Prince of Peace that you will experience the kind of earthly peace that you know you wish you would. Our eternal peace will cause temporal and earthly adversity. It will be, as he says here, a sword. A sword. Now, it's important We'll, come, we'll say a little bit more about this, but it's important at the outset to realize he's speaking of a metaphor, right? The language of the sword is throughout the Bible. We'll even draw attention to it before even our time is up today. But that picture of this metaphor of the sword is of division, of violence, of force, of something that is done against someone else's will, of power and authority. But notice Jesus never himself takes up the sword. He never does. He never picks up the sword and, you know, you know, calls to himself a militia and an army. In fact, he says to Pontius Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were of this world, we'd be picking up swords. And he says, my kingdom is not of this world. It can't be encompassed in this world. My kingdom has come to this world and it will turn this world on its head. And the Gospel of John, if you remember a few years ago, even as a church, we walked through this, he says, peace, I leave with you. My peace. I give to you, but he makes sure to point out what he means, not as the world gives do I give to you. So I'm giving you a kind of peace, and I'm giving you it in such a measure that won't make sense to the world. The world offers a kind of peace and gives peace in a certain way. And he says, that's not the peace I give to you. I'm giving you a peace that is, that is beyond and supernatural. It is out of this world. Let not then your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Mind you, this is when he's telling them, you're going to have trouble in this world. But take heart, I've overcome this world. And that 
gives us an enduring eternal peace. But Jesus says, make no mistake about it. All true comfort and happiness. Puritan Thomas Brooks says, and I agree with him here, is only to be found in having an all-sufficient God for your portion. Real peace, real contentment comes from having an all-sufficient God as your refuge and portion. And so the minute you claim that Jesus is your Prince of Peace, you set yourself at odds with the world. To say that you have gotten the peace that Jesus says he leaves to you is to say that you are not any more dependent upon the peace that the world offers and the manner in which it offers it. And this will cause adversity. Adversity, he says here, that will happen inevitably in the place where you and I would be least likely to expect it. Where? In our most intimate relationships, our immediate family. Now again, this shouldn't shock us. We'll find this later in the Gospel of Matthew, but the Gospel of Mark says it this way, Jesus says, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mothers or father or children or lands for my sake and for the Gospel. So stop right there. He's, he's implying this will happen. Someone, you will leave these things that seem like, and I mean, after all, if you were like, what, what's a happy, healthy, wonderful life? It's a, it's a life where you have a house. It's a house where you have brothers and sisters, a mother and a father, children, Property? Oh my goodness, this is great. And what does he say will happen? The implication is that you will be losing these things for his sake and for the gospel. And yet, what does he tell us? The sword comes with a reward. Right? There's no one who will do these things who will not receive a hundredfold. Now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come, eternal life. Do you hear it? And it's eternal reward by, by receiving the gift of God's grace to us in Christ. And yet, a reward that immediately puts us at odds with the wealth of the world. A paradox that evidently says, you're going to receive, you're going to receive this gift. Even though you lose what the world thinks is valuable, you're going to receive something else. And it will look like a hundredfold. A hundredfold? I mean, just stop for a minute. Could, could just imagine your house a hundredfold more valuable, right? Imagine your square footage in your house being a hundredfold bigger, right? Like, okay, like, do you get the idea? What's he talking about? And he's talking about his family, his people. After all, this is exactly what Jesus even experienced. When he came, the Gospel of Mark tells us that Jesus went home and once again a crowd gathered so that he and his disciples could not even eat. And his family, the people who love and care for him, thought, what? When his family heard about it, they went out to take custody of him. That's a nice way of saying it. Does anyone in your family try to take custody of you? That's, ooh, okay. Thanks, Britney Spears, right? That's, a, that's, that's curious. And what'd they say? And why'd they say it? He's out of his mind. You get it? Even Jesus experienced this. The supernatural, otherworldly kingdom and otherworldly calling will inevitably put you at odds with the world. So, here's what I want to propose to you. A couple of observations Jesus makes here. A sword is coming, it will divide, and it will divide across the lines of the family. What for us would seem like 
in any culture, in any place, the most valuable and most important thing. The most valuable resource you can imagine would be your family. It's the most important thing. And yet Jesus is pointing at something here. Jesus is leading us to see something. And I think he does three things to teach it, teach us this, that to follow Jesus is to relinquish all rights of self-determination. Even we've seen this in the weeks past, that, that to, to be sent by Jesus, to go in his name, and to speak in his name, to proclaim from the rooftops in his name, is to relinquish our own sense of calling. The chapter begins with the calling of the disciples, and we talked about this, I'll say it again, because there's some of you I know who work in the medical field or a field where this is the case, right? Some of you, on, uh, on a given time during the week, are on call, right? And when you're on call, your life is not your own, right? You, you're, you're carrying around a pager or a, or a cell phone or something, and it's, boy, it it's, might as well be a shackle, right? And it's like, you don't really own your time. At any given moment, you lose your will and your own self-determination. That's the picture of the call of Christ on the lives of his followers as he sends them into the world. That they will experience adversity, and yet they will have no cause for fear because Jesus will meet them even on the way. But to follow Jesus is to relinquish all rights of self-determination. I say that in its strongest possible terms, one, because Jesus does, but second, because I know many of you in this room, maybe you're not a believer. Maybe you wouldn't call yourself a Christian. Maybe you're not sure. Maybe you're curious about what this whole Christianity thing is. And I would hate to soft sell this one, right? This is where Christians are tempted to kind of bait and switch, right? If you're not a Christian, say, oh, it's good. Just come on in. It's going to be fun and easy, right? And then, oh, shoot, I forgot to tell you all the stuff that Jesus says, that it's not any of those things. And so I want you to hear the words of Jesus on its merit, not that they're not shocking, they absolutely are, but that his words come with promises that make what he's asking of us and calling us to completely worth it. So, one of the first powerful truths here that cuts like a sword, Jesus is more valuable than your immediate family. Jesus is more valuable than your immediate family. He's very specific about the sword he means to wield, this metaphorical dividing tool. He says, I've come to set a man against his father and a daughter against mother and mother and a daughter-in-law against a mother-in-law. Well, that last one's not that hard to <laughs> fathom, right? Like, you know. But on the other hand, if that's the case, at least, you know, hopefully your division with in-laws is because of the gospel and the call of Jesus and not just because you're both jerks. I don't know. But he came to wield a sword that divides, and where does it say it would divide? It would divide at the most intimate relationships that the people had otherwise known, their immediate family. Now, this isn't, this isn't even uh, that hard to fathom now, but even in a Western, more individualistic society, this seems less shocking. But if you were to kind of zoom out and, and go back in time to an Eastern, more communal and familial relationship like, or structure of culture, like this is shocking. Right, because it's only in the family that you have a profession, you have a career, you have any sort of wealth, any sort of well-being, any sort of protection, any sort of chance for marriage. Right? These are all through the family. And when Jesus says, I've come to cut something, I've come to separate something, and it will separate the most valuable relationships, the most meaningful and substantial relationships that you can currently imagine, is provocative. And that's not even... It, he says, verse 37, he ups it. He says, even so, it's not as though you might, you might kind of come to Jesus and go like, okay, fine, right? 
This is going to cause a rift between, like the gospel, my, my loyalty to Jesus is going to cause a rift between my family and I. Okay, we'll, like, we'll cope with that. No, he says it's not just that. It's the competition of love and value. He says, whoever loves father or mother more than me is not even worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Look, it might be the case that, I heard one pastor say, comfort ultimately breeds complacency. And conflict or contention breeds courage. Jesus came to be rejected and he sends us out to be rejected even in the most important relationships that a human being can imagine. On one hand, I love how realistic and honest the Bible is and I especially love how realistic Jesus is. Right? It would be foolish for even in this moment to be like, hey guys, this week is going to be great. It's after all, it's Christmas. It is the most wonderful time of the year. Right? I'd love for that to be the truth for you guys. Maybe it is for some of you. But Jesus is more honest, and I appreciate that. You'll certainly face despair, discouragement, fear, disappointment. You'll certainly face those things. And Jesus says, don't have any fear about those things. I know you're going to face those things. The grim prospect of trouble in this life isn't overlooked by Jesus. It's inevitable. And he says to the 12 here, it is inevitable that you will experience hostility. And I thank Jesus for that. But even if I told you that, it's possible that many of you would say, you're right, it's going to be tough, but at least I have my family for refuge. And what we've seen over the last few weeks, that one of the most profound things that Jesus does for us when he sends out his disciples when he sends us de proclaiming a, a, de a demand for absolute and ultimate authority is that it exposes what already has ultimate authority in our lives. And, and when he calls you and I to absolute and utter loyalty, it begins to expose in our hearts and our own lives what we're tempted to betray Jesus about. And, and don't miss the gift here. If I, if I said, you are to lose and give up everything that thing that, that comes to your mind that's like, ooh, not that. Just recognize that, that, in light of what Jesus says here, that is a slave master. It owns you. And here's the problem. Between that and Jesus, you have a choice. And that thing will never die for you. That thing will never be utterly loyal to you. It will use you and spit you out. And so if I said, hey, you know, we ask this regularly, like, this is going to cost you everything. There's something in you that may, may say a, a phrase like, well, well, no matter what happens, at least I still have this, right? Fill in the blank. And that thing is your Lord. That thing rules over you. And it will be either a kind, gracious king that is Jesus, or it will be something like your job. And it's ruthless. It's insatiable. It always wants more. Or it'll be something like, well, at least I know people like me. Oh, what an awful slave master, right? It always wants more. It's always right out of reach. Well, at least I know I'm successful. And in this case, he says, you might be tempted to think, at least I have a place of refuge in my immediate family. It shouldn't shock us. He's already taught us that to follow him means that even you get the picture of someone having to hear from Jesus well, I must bury my father. And Jesus says, let the dead bury their dead. 
And the reason that they're called to leave those things isn't because those things are bad. It's just that those things can't offer what Jesus alone can. So even start with some theology here. Hear the groundwork for what he's claiming. Do you hear that phrase, I have come? I have come. Now this, this is, right, you see this especially in the Gospel of John. But hear the, hear the broad theology of this, that Jesus is the preexistent one. Jesus is the eternal one. The one is truly God, come to take on flesh, truly as a human. And so he says things provocative, like, even before Abraham was, I am, right? Like, this is the one who's calling us to himself. Don't miss that. He, he's saying, I'm the one who has existed beforehand. I've just arrived. I just happened to be here so that you will see what God is like up close and in person. This is what chapter 8 told us about, speaking with great authority. And this authority sets up a conflict that the disciples will face. So, Jesus is more valuable than your immediate family. Let that, like a sword, start to cut you apart. It gets worse. Jesus is more valuable than your comfort. Verse 37, whoever loves his father and mother more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever loves his son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Now, this is the first mention of the cross in the gospel. Obviously, for Christians, the cross shows up more later, but we get a foreshadowing. And, and, and at this point, the people listening wouldn't have it, had any clue of what he was saying, right? They, they wouldn't have had any clue what Jesus meant. But they would have at least had a picture in their mind of what the cross meant. There would have been crosses along every Roman road as a public example of the Roman Empire saying, this is what happens when you get out of line. This is what happens when you turn on us. And so they get a very vivid picture here. To be, to be lumped in with those insignificant people who are utterly subjected to shame to all the world. This is what a person must be willing to take up. Otherwise, they're not worthy of me, he says. So look what Jesus is calling us to. Jesus is more valuable than your comfort. In the same way that Jesus offers what your family cannot, and what down deep as a good thing you really wish they could, and you look to them for. In the same way, so also Jesus offers what creature comforts that you and I desire cannot. They always run out. Jesus speaks in the other synoptic gospels about this as well, right? That, that you ought to be valuing, literally storing up treasures in heaven. Otherwise, you're storing up treasure where moth can eat, where thieves can steal. They can rot, rust, and be destroyed. And Jesus is offering a treasure that you and I are to receive, a reward that you and I are to receive that is more valuable and amazing than your own comfort. Again, feel the sword, the knife start to cut. It feels abrasive, right? That's hard to believe because I know what many of you would think right now. Do you, like, do you know what I'm going through? Do you know what I've endured? As we saw last week, no, I don't, but someone does. And begin to feel the knife cut, a provocative statement that Jesus offers a relief and comfort and refuge that the removal of that discomfort and pain that you currently feel would never be able to give. 
feels like a stab, right? This is a sword, a sword that goes right through our own sense of family, a, a sword that goes right through our own sense of comfort, what it means to enjoy life. And while Jesus offers us peace ultimately, he does not promise us peace immediately. And so when he says, for example, don't think that I've come to bring peace, he's saying, don't think that my compassion is me being naive. Don't think that because I'm kind and generous that I'm a fool. Don't think that because I freely offer myself to you that it doesn't have great cost, a cost that Jesus alone can pay. Jesus is more valuable than your comfort. And what he offers is better than that thing that right now you think is the most comfortable place, person, or thing. It gets worse. Jesus is more valuable than your life. Whoever does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me, but then what does he say? Whoever finds his life will lose it. The idea that's being communicated here is that if you're seeking, right, if you're clamoring after, if you're in the process of finding your life, right, this will sound really good for, for any of us who, who were kind of born in the last, you know, 40 years, right, finding yourself, right, discovering yourself. I mean, that's a big deal, right? Um, it, it'd be like a sin to say to someone, I have not found myself. You're like, oh, I can't believe that, right? But, but the idea here is that, like, if you're in the process of discovering your identity and sense of purpose and meaning, if you're in the process of doing that, you're never going to find it. And in fact, you'll, not only will you not find it, you'll end up without it or worse. But if you give those things away, if you let go, relinquish the right to life for my sake, that's when you find it. Think of what he's saying. If you make something other than Jesus your ultimate meaning in life, then it will rob you it will strangle you, and it will hollow you out. Now, it's often easier to see in other people than it is to see in ourselves, but have you ever met someone so superficial that it's hard to be friends with them? Have you ever been around someone so materialistic that it's, it's hard to relate to them? Have you ever seen someone in pursuit of something so important, so valuable to them that they use you to get it? Have you ever seen that? Do you see how hollow they become? How lonely and isolated they become? It's easy to see in someone else, but look what Jesus is doing. He's holding up a mirror to you and to me. Whatever we find our meaning in, whatever we find our life in, that thing where you're like, my life is ultimately about fill in the blank. If it's not Christ, it will rob you, strangle you. It will hollow you out. But if you give up that quest for ultimate meaning on your own terms and receive Jesus in its place, you will find your truest life. There's so many sources of meaning being sold to you. It's probably what scares me the most. So many people would say, like, the thing that's wrong with you and the thing that you need to fix, the thing that you really need to discover in the world is related to gender, sexuality, success, acceptance, power, prestige. And those things start to become more than things. 
they become your life. They become your very soul. And when those things start to become the non-negotiable things, one of the ways you know is that as soon as it's threatened, your very life and soul is threatened. And you will wield your own sword to defend that thing. And here's the paradox. That thing that you will fight, the thing you're most insecure about, is evidence of your bondage. And the paradox is if you let go of that thing, if you cling to Christ and what He offers, you actually find the real meaning of that thing to begin with. He's already said this before. After all, he said, if you think you can fit what I'm doing into old wineskins, if you think you can patch what I'm doing onto an old, unshrunk cloth, it will ruin both. You don't understand. And so here's what this does. It confronts those of us who want to, in this case maybe, as he wields a sword that divides family, it confronts those of us who want to include everyone on our own terms. Right? When Jesus says hell and like says there's going to be divisions, there's many people like, oh, that can't be right. There's no way. There's no way that God wouldn't include everyone in this. And see how this is a sword that confronts you, that you want to include people on your own terms. You've probably come up with your own measurement, your own rubric for for evaluating who's really in and who's really on your team and who's really not. But it also confronts those of us who want to exclude people on our own terms. Jesus is the one who, who wields the sword. He is the dividing line. He alone is the means of inclusion and exclusion. If you want, you can remember this. We, you'll, someone will read it sometime this week. But the Magnificat, the beautiful psalm and hymn of Mary, what does she say? She responds in glory after a promise is given to her in Luke chapter 2 by Simeon. So Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that will be opposed, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. Friend, this is the promise Simeon gave to Mary that made her burst forth in song that God would come and bring this beautiful and amazing thing, and yet it would come at great cost. It would even challenge get this, the mother of Jesus and her authority, the things that she would cling to. But along with the sword comes the reward. He concludes these challenges to be sent out with an overwhelming promise. So as you and I see this through the lens of Advent and begin to see how we are sent out in light of Christ being sent for us, we also begin to see Advent through the lens of our life on mission, that as a church and as people who call themselves Christians, we are united to Jesus and his purpose. You and I are sent out to proclaim from the rooftops. And even though we will experience adversity, even though it will, it will gnaw at the things that own our own hearts, it comes at an an absolutely immeasurable reward. Verse 40, whoever receives you receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. The one who receives a prophet because he is a prophet will receive a prophet's reward, 
And the one who receives a righteous person, because he's a righteous person, will receive a righteous person's reward. Do you hear that? It's the, we're now, we're, now we're invited to see it from both sides. Up to this point, he's been talking about what it means to send us out. But, but now he begins to let us see what it means for us to receive and to be received. And look how he unites the message, the proclamation, and even the reception with what? Himself. If they receive you, they receive me. So this gives us two encouragements. One, an encouragement of how to receive and the reward that comes. And an encouragement of how those who receive will actually receive more than us. They'll receive Christ himself. Even a prophet's reward and even the word there of a saint, a righteous person. They'll be united together. I mean, just think about that. Follow the logic from larger to smaller. If they receive Jesus, they'll receive you. And if they receive you, then, then they'll receive the reward that comes with a prophet or a righteous person. Or even, did you catch that in verse 42? And whoever gives one of these little ones, this is a phrase that's going to come up later. Sometimes it means children, but in this case, he's speaking of other disciples beyond the apostles. These little ones, even a cup of cold water because the little one is what? A disciple. Then truly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. Conflict comes because of conflicting loves, but the reward comes for those who see what Jesus is and receive all he offers. In that sense, it makes sense that you would trade off a smaller reward for a larger one. It makes sense that you would see the infinite wealth of the creator of the universe come to be with us in Christ and be willing to give up whatever else it is that you have. In the same way that you would, you would give, right? It, it, it's, not even, it's not even a mathematical equation. Would you trade your bank account for Jeff Bezos or Elon Musk's, right? Like that, that you wouldn't even be like, well, let me, let me think on that, right? It, it, it'd be foolish to even contemplate. You'd be like, absolutely. Assuming Jeff Bezos is not in here, in which case, I don't know, right? But like the idea that we would look at a great and beautiful and valuable thing and, and then go, oh, I don't, I don't, I don't know if I'll trade. I like, I like mine. I like what I've got. That's the reward we're meant to see here. Who would, Jesus says elsewhere, especially in the Gospel of John, who would then try to gain the whole world at the forefoot of their soul? Who wouldn't look at Jesus and what he's offered and be willing to trade off what you and I have? Those who give our highest priority in life to protecting ourselves will end up with nothing left to protect. And yet those of us who give up and let go of all the things that we hold so tightly to for the sake of receiving the gift of Jesus, did you hear that? Have a reward that never passes away. Not only that, but like there's this credit that's wrapped up here. Did you get that? The idea that like if a prophet comes, he'll have a prophet's fame, a prophet's reward. But even if you and I would listen to and hear a prophetic word, we get the reward that the prophet gets. We get lumped into it. If a righteous person comes, right? Hey, if I say, hey, this is a really good guy, you should listen. Well, this is a really great woman, you should listen to this person. You're like, well, that honor that they get even by listening, by receiving, we are now wrapped up in and identified with. And here's the crazy one. To receive Jesus is to be wrapped up in his reward. The minute we receive him, we're actually united with the Father in him. 
Look, imagine the one who surrenders their current freedoms in order to profess Jesus as Lord and finding meaning and value. Imagine what that would mean for you and me, that our self-esteem would be based on the love and call and advent of Christ. Because here's what you know. This divides not only our loyalty to our own life, to our own comfort, or even to our own family, but it offers something that we could never otherwise receive. And before we move on, just measure these together. The infinite reward and cost of rejecting and accepting Jesus, paired with the value of our family, of our comfort, and even of our life. And realize it can be Simple to think, well, maybe it's one versus the other. It is bigger than you think. The ultimate choice is not between Jesus and your family, your comfort, or your life. The ultimate choice is between Jesus and eternal separation from God. Hear what Jesus is saying. It's not that you will just have to choose between me and your family, me and your comfort, me and your life. It's me or nothing. I'm all there is. And when you get to see that, you start being free to actually love and value and understand things like family and things like comfort and even your own life. When you realize that ultimate loyalty to those things would be to forfeit your eternal reward. And remember, the word hell here that we read over that Jesus said is no less shocking for them when they first read it or when he first said it than when we read it now but to forfeit your reward and to choose these things and receive what is eternal separation from God would be foolish. Friend, the ultimate choice isn't just between you and these things. The ultimate choice is between Jesus and nothing at all. We said this in the Gospel of John, right? Jesus didn't come to make your life better. He came to make your life possible. He didn't come to help a bunch of living people have better lives. He came to help dead people be resurrected to life, period. And this is what we have. Let me give you some ways that I think this applies as we wrap up. One, to negotiate with Jesus to miss Jesus. I don't know which of those three maybe is a sword for you, but like, if I come and say, like, hey... I mean, I shared this with you. This is, this is Advent. If I said, like, hey, what's the coolest thing about Christmas? And you think of, like, all the things at the radio station, like your family, you think all those things. It's like, hey, you might miss it. Good luck. Jesus is the most valuable thing, and he doesn't negotiate. He doesn't negotiate. Well, Jesus, can I have you and? Nope. Can I have you and? Nope. It's Jesus or nothing. Other thing I want you to see here is grace is a sword. Grace is the sword. Grace is the thing that comes and divides. It's offensive. Don't dull the edges of grace. I'll give you a, a few different applications. Like Grace comes as a sword, and grace tells you you can't make it on your own. 
Grace comes and says, no matter what you do, you can't actually achieve what you wish you could achieve. Now, this, this, and if you don't think grace is a sword, again, welcome to the upper Midwest. Let's play a game, okay? Go tell a culture that loves, loves how hard we work, that their work is worthless. Go, go tell the people you know who, who their whole life is wrapped up. Well, he's a hard worker. She's a hard worker. Yeah, man, that'll be great in hell, right? right? Let's play a game. See how sword-like grace is. Grace comes and says that your work is worthless. You don't get to add to or take away from the work of Jesus. Jesus does it all. Grace tells you you are in need. Here's the scary thing. Grace is a sword even in the family. And I know what you'll think. You want to negotiate, like not my family. But Jesus gets to wield the sword. And if you think, oh, yeah, well, I was, I was raised by Christians. No, no, you don't negotiate. Jesus gets the sword. Oh, but I'm a Christian and my children, no, no, Jesus gets the sword. Let's play another game. Go find the, like, right, go find the most helicopter parents you know and tell them that all of their work is a waste. Like, right, just see, just see if it's a sword or not. That's what grace is. Grace says, grace alone, God alone, his mercy alone. Tell people striving to wield the sword and say, no, no, not my family. Show them grace, and you'll realize it's a sword. It's a gift that cuts. It cuts open a place that helicopter parents are most afraid of in their deepest, darkest fears. It's a sword. After all, it's a sword to tell a child. I mean, think about this. Don't say this to a child, please, but like reflect on it with me. It's a sword to tell a child that ultimately their parents are not the one that love them, but that God does. It's a sword, right, to make a child question their parents' love. It cuts. It's radical. And yet, this is what we know to be true. That this otherworldly grace that God gives, as deep as it cuts, so also does it heal. It cuts, but it offers what these other things only can hope to point toward. Now, again, caveat here. If some of you were like, exactly, I hate my parents. Thank you, Jesus. Okay, that's not, that's not, that's not, that's not what he's saying, okay? Right? You're to honor your father and your mother, and yet at the same time, love Jesus more. And, he's, and again, he's not saying, yeah, neglect your kids, right? Forget them, you know, or even, you heard it there, even your in-laws, right? That's not what he's saying. If that's how you read it, you, you've missed Jesus, okay? He's saying, you will find in me what those things point toward. You will be granted in me what those things ultimately give. And here's what I can tell you. I am no, I am, I am no better friend to you than when I love Jesus more than you. I'm the best possible husband to my wife when I don't love her more than Jesus. And I give my life to Jesus, and Jesus actually frees me to love her rightly and not so selfishly. Because here's the thing, even parents can be selfish at times. I love, I love how this is on display. I got to, you, see this, you see this in youth sports, right? There's this fine line between a parent who's yelling at a child for their benefit, like it's about them and they're good, and then yelling at a child in a game, and it's really about the parent, right? Have you ever seen that line crossed? It's like, they might as well yell, you're disappointing me. You're reflecting poorly on me. Like, just say it, man. Just let everyone know. Just, 
Have you seen it? Because even a parent who loves has, the, has this temptation, right? This sword cuts and says, ultimately, I'm for you, not me. I relinquish my need. And why do we do that? Because that's the character of God. God who looked at us and gave himself to us, not because he needs us, not because he benefits from us, but because he is infinitely and matchlessly gracious. And he freely gives himself to us as though we have anything to contribute. And that cuts, but it also restores. You were dead in your sin. Many of you are thinking like, well, maybe this won't cut my family. I was born into fill in the blank. The Bible gives us a a radical reinterpretation. You were born in sin, and you need to be cut out of it. And you feel it. I know many of you feel it. Your new life in Christ is cutting you apart from something you loved. And I know it. And you feel it, right? Even now, you feel like, oh, I want, but I want this thing. And you feel it pull, and it hurts. But here's the thing. How did the first Gentile become a Jew? All the way back to the story of Abraham, the first Gentile became a Jew because of what? The God of the universe literally cut a covenant with him. Cut him out of the world to be a means of blessing. You can't be born into this. You have to be born again into this. The first Jew was a Gentile until God of the universe cut him out of the world. You can't appeal to your family or even your nationality or even your culture. You cannot appeal to what you were born into. Ultimately, you need to be cut out of what you were born into. You were born in sin, and Jesus, by mercy, came to cut you out of it. This sword he brings is a sword that brings life, not like the sword that you and I wield, because ultimately, our significance and our value is fixed in Christ. Our value is in Him. And He calls us to these things because He offers us such a great reward. That is Himself. Your life and your mission is united to Christ and to the Father who has sent Him. And here's the beauty. Did you hear it? Even the least. Oh, what an encouragement. Like, this morning, did, <laughs> did you, did you, this morning, if you welcomed someone, I know, I know it's for some of you, you're highly introverted, and, and we're like, hey, welcome one another, and you're like, oh, God, no, right? Hey, did you hear me? All you, I know that was hard for some of you. Did, it was hard for you to introduce yourself to someone, uh, you know, an hour ago, right? And here I went to, did you hear it? That welcome was seen by God, is valued by Christ, and is, is stirring up, like storing up in Christ a reward. Even the little one, even the smallest, What a beautiful picture of what he gives, because ultimately to receive and follow Jesus is to receive infinite reward. In Christ, we receive the reward of a prophet. In Christ, this will get you, we receive the reward and welcome of the righteous. He welcomes us as righteous. In Christ, you're no longer rejected, even if you are rejected on account of Christ. And to trust in him is to receive all the benefits of him. Even if you only know suffering in this life. Hospitality to one another is a great reward from God himself. And you can love him more than life because apart from him there is none. You can love him more than family because apart from him there really is none. And you can lose everything for him because apart from him there is nothing. He's the reward. He's worth losing everything for. 
Paul says this, he's willingly experienced the loss of all things. There's a family we might lose, but a reward eternal that we gain. Don't believe me? Do you remember some of the final words of Jesus on the cross? Who in a moment of great despair and dereliction, did you hear it? Experienced a sword between he and his own father. Cried out to God in that moment and said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But friend, we don't mourn that loss, even though he himself experienced that sword, that separation from his own immediate family. Because why? Because of the reward. Because on the third day, he was raised to great reward. He was exalted to the right hand of the Father and is now inviting you and I to join in the reward. Friend, we don't go out on mission because we're going to be successful. We go because our portion and our treasure is in Christ. And when we receive him and are sent out in him, we join him, are united to him and all that he offers. He lost his family. He lost everything so that you and I would never lose it. Let's pray and thank God for that. Lord, thank you so much that you have sent us out, not with mystery, but with clear expectation. Uh, thank you that you, even in this chapter, have not left us to, to wonder about the future, but you have given us assurance about it. Thank you that you have seen fit in your mercy to use us, not because you need us, but because you love us. So Lord, I ask that even now, if there's some in this room that the call of Christ will cost them and they know it, would you even now overwhelm them with a vision of the reward? There's nothing that they could lose that would be more valuable and precious than you. Maybe for the rest of us, we know this good news, and yet we regularly are gripped by the value of these other things. Help us now to let go of them where we must let go in order to grasp and receive the reward that you freely offer. Help us to come to you by grace with nothing in our hands, nothing to offer, but only a reward and gift to receive. Help us then be freed after receiving that reward to now then love and understand our relationship to the world. God, even for this week, help us to have a renewed relationship to our family, not as the source of ultimate meaning, but as a mission field, a gift that points to the ultimate family we have in Christ. Help us to see the things around us, maybe even the things wrapped up in packages, as good and they, they point to gifts, but they, they don't satisfy. They simply indicate. They leave us with a hunger and find us longing for satisfaction that we get in the gift of Jesus. God, thank you that you've come. Thank you that we don't have to wait any longer. You've brought your kingdom and now all the rewards are ours in Christ. Might we look to him now and receive them in Jesus' name. Amen.